Hey everyone, this is Mike Skinner. I want to welcome you to the sermon podcast for Sweetwater Christian Church. We are glad that you are interested in joining us as we follow Christ. If you'd ever like to support our ministry financially or just learn more about us, head on over to sweetwaterchristian.org. Thanks and God bless. Well, good morning. Normally, after I've been gone for weeks, I didn't preach last week, I come with about an hour and a half long sermon. And so I hope you are buckled up, you're refreshed, you're hydrated. Kidding, we're not going to go too long this morning. Um, I have a, a, a story, though, from the Gospels that I want to share with you. And so let me invite you, if you have your Bibles, to open up with me to the book of John, chapter 21. If you don't have one with you, there should be a, a hardback underneath a seat around you. You're more than invited to grab one of those. John 21 uh, there's a story, a narrative in John 21 I want to share with you this morning that I really enjoyed reading through and praying through the past couple of weeks and want to kind of invite you along to journey through with me this morning. All of us at one time or another, whether we're kids or adults, whether we're religious or not religious, whether we go to church every Sunday or go to church just every so often, have to ask ourselves this question throughout our lives, where do we find God? Where do we go to encounter God? Where do we go to understand what God is like, who God is, what God is up to in our world, in our lives? Where can we go to experience God? And most of us in this room, I'm guessing, if we had time to share and to go around, have probably met God in surprising places or in surprising times. We've probably understood something about God in a a place or situation where we might not expect to really gain a a key insight about who God is or what God is up to. And our story this morning is is all about this. It's about this question, where might we find God, where might we meet with God, and how might this happen in in perhaps some unusual places. Um, John 21 is where we'll be. We're going to read a story about Jesus coming to the disciples after his resurrection. Um, And so if you have come to the church for a while, you know that John is one of my, I mean, there's four of them, so they're all top four, right? John is one of my favorite resurrection stories in the, the four Gospels we have. Um, I love it because it's, it's a little bit like me. It doesn't take itself too seriously, although it takes Jesus very seriously. Um, I mean, to me, that's like the highest compliment you can, you can pay someone, right? Take Jesus seriously, but you can laugh at yourself. Um, and, and John's resurrection story is full of just a lot of humor that I really appreciate, as it tells, it's a very profound, very moving, very artful story. Um, if you're familiar with it, I'll just recap really quickly. Um, more or less, Jesus resurrects, and then we get a story about two disciples coming to the tomb to see what they've heard from Mary Magdalene, who has uh, first witnessed Jesus' resurrection. We have the guy who writes the Gospel of John. He calls himself the one that Jesus loved, the beloved disciple. He thinks a lot of himself. And then you have Peter, who's also one of the like, heavy hitters in the early group of the disciples, And John goes out of his way multiple times, three or four times, to tell us that he beat Peter to the tomb. Now, I've studied this for years and years and years. It adds nothing to the story, okay? There's nothing you would miss without that detail. And yet John goes out of his way over and over and over again just to make sure you understand. He got there first. He's faster. Peter's a loser. And Almost all of John, what I've found with with the Gospel of John is that I'm almost always rewarded for spending time here. I've I've very rarely ever encountered a passage in John that I've not really been rewarded from for spending time, for praying, for reading deeply about it. John is this very artful writer, so there's always layers to his writing. 
There's always new symbols to explore. There's always just a lot of beauty in the way he puts together a story, what he includes, why he includes it, what he might be trying to point towards. And for whatever reason, I had never really continued to read really deeply like this past the resurrection story in chapter 20. But for the past few weeks, I've been reading in, in chapter 21, and I've, I've seen some of this come alive to me again. And so I want to look at the story in chapter 21, verses 1 through 14 with you together this morning. It reads like this. After Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, or after this, Jesus revealed himself again, and he revealed himself in this way. Verse 2, Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. I love that he names most of these disciples and gives a description for some of them, right? Like the twin, he's from Galilee, and then he just runs out of energy. And then two other people were there. They're not important. You don't need to know this for the story. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. I think John very carefully says this is Peter's idea, okay? Peter comes up with a plan. He says, I'm going to go fishing. We were just there. We decided to go out with him. They went out and got into a boat, and that night they caught nothing. So Peter can't run very fast, and he obviously can't plan a very good fishing expedition. The Greek, the way this, this sentence is constructed, is very emphatic. So there's a lot of emphasis on this nothing, nothing. They didn't catch anything. There were a lot of fish out there. They didn't get one of them. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Now we have the ingredients for a good story. Disciples out fishing all night. They haven't caught anything. Jesus on the shore resurrected, but they don't quite know who he is yet. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? It's a funny question to me. I like it. The way this is constructed as well in the Greek assumes the answer is no. So the idea is that Jesus knew they hadn't caught anything. We would probably ask a question like this. You haven't caught anything, have you? Jesus calls out, hey, kids, you haven't caught anything, have you? And they say, no. And then he says to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. I'm not a fisherman. I'm not great at it. I've not done a lot. I have gone out on some fishing trips. And a couple of years ago, we went as a church. Some of the men at the church went out on a kind of a deep sea fishing trip from Galveston, we went for like four or five hours. No one on the entire boat really caught anything. And it's fun, right? Who doesn't like that? But a few hours after not catching anything, things start to get a little frustrating, right? I can't even imagine being out all night, not catching anything. And then you hear a voice from the shore. And it's a backseat driver. Someone on the shore has got some ideas for your fishing trip. And here's his idea. Hey, just drop it down like eight feet on the other side and see what that does for you. Now, these disciples were more or less professional fishermen. I mean, not in the way we would think of today, but, but many of these guys had kind of been formally trained in this since they were young kids. This is the family kind of business. I can only imagine that there's some like eye rolling, right? They don't know who it is. Like, We'll, we'll talk about mental health. We'll do a series on mental health in the early fall, probably uh, in early, mid-September. And I've always like, chuckled when someone gets depressed and someone's like, why don't, you, why don't you just be happy, right? It's like, great idea, right? Brilliant advice. If only I had thought of that, right, all my problems would be solved. They've not caught any fish. Hey, just, just drop it down again, but do it like four feet over, right? And see if you catch something. So they kind of begrudgingly, they do it. 
And then, of course, right, because this is the way life works, once they do that, they were unable to haul in the net. So a night of no fish anywhere, no catches, some guy from the shore yells out some instructions, they follow them, and all of a sudden now the tables have completely turned. They can't even get in how many fish they have there. And then the disciple whom Jesus loved, so this is John, says to Peter, it is the Lord. So John wants you to realize, okay, Peter knew it was Jesus and he's going to do something, but he only knew it was Jesus because I told him, right? I, I recognized it. I hinted it to Peter. Then Peter, when he hears it's the Lord, he put it on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. This is great. Peter is a young man. They're out fishing. He's got his shirt off, okay? He has stripped a little bit. He recognizes this is Jesus, because John tells him. And he says, I, I want to meet him. I want to go be with him, but I'm not presentable. So he's like, okay, let's put on some of the clothing again. And he puts it on and jumps into the, the sea, the water, which kind of, to me, defeats the purpose a little bit. He's so overcome with enthusiasm, with excitement, he jumps into the water. Notice, too, he jumps in the water right as some actual work starts to begin on the boat. This is where I really start to relate to Peter, okay? Peter sees that there's going to be some muscle that's going to need to start to be, to be put into action. And Peter says, this is my cue to do something else, to leave. Peter throws himself into the sea while other disciples have to come onto the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they're not yet far from the land, about 100 yards off. When they got on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. The table had been set for them. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. Now Peter, who really didn't help get the fish back to shore, goes back onto the boat, by himself hauls the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. This is just Peter for you. He's very, he's very um, eager and willing and wants to do everything and do it with all of his might. And so he swims up. He's talking to Jesus. They come up with the boat. Jesus is like, hey, bring those fish. Peter's like, I'll get it. Y'all stay back. And he is kind of struggling for 20 minutes, right, trying to pull these huge uh, fish, 150 of them, in this net. Um, Jesus said to them, verse 12, come and have breakfast. What a great invitation. Come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Three times in this story, at the very beginning, twice, and one at the end, we get this word revealed. Jesus is revealed to his disciples. What we have here is a revelation of the risen Christ. Jesus has been walking with the disciples. He's been going about performing his ministry, teaching alongside them. He's crucified. He comes back from death, out through the other side of death itself, the risen Christ. And he now, for the third time, shows himself to the disciples. And this relieves our question this morning. The text emphasizes three times. This is John underlining for you. This is about revelation. This is about where we might find Jesus. This is where we might find the resurrected Christ in our world. The first two um, resurrection revelations in the Gospel of John happen at the tomb itself to Mary Magdalene and then to the disciples hold together in a room later that day. This one comes about later. This seems to be John's way of, of suggesting how the risen Christ might continue to be found by his disciples. 
outside of just the Sunday morning Easter one-off experience? How might the church, how might the disciples, how might you and I continue to have Christ revealed to us as the the crucified one, as the risen one, as the one sent from God, as God's very own self-revelation? And to answer that question, he gives us this story, this beautiful and profound story. And I think we could go through this story, and in fact we will for, for a little bit this morning, and just tease out some of the many ways that John is hinting at us that Christ might be found, that may still be true even in our own lives, in a, in a much different context. Places where you and I might be able to go or be able to look, be able to expect when we're in those situations that we might get a revelation of Christ. We might get a picture of who he is, of what he's like, of what he's up to, what he's doing in our lives, what he's doing in the world, what he's doing in the, the world around us. I mean, there's, there's lots of, of, of breadcrumbs to trace here as, as John tells this story. The first thing that stands out to me is, is it's a moment, this fishing trip, this kind of failed fishing expedition, it's a moment of, of perceived failure for the disciples. And I wonder if it's not like God to often show up at a moment of weakness, or at a moment where things don't go the way you'd planned they would go, or, or you weren't able to do that which you had expected yourself to do. If, if, if God's ever shown up in, in your life in an area of disappointment, an area of hurt, in a situation that would be unexpected. It's, it's not after you converted someone, your neighbor to Christianity, and led them in a prayer, and then helped them join at the church and become baptized. It's instead at, at that moment where you're broken down, where everything's gone wrong in your life. I wonder if anyone here is familiar with this, this moment, this moment of not being able to find any fish all night, and then in that place, not outside of that place, not the day after that place, but in that moment, in that place, getting a vision, seeing, having something connect, having the dots traced together for you, having something click in your heart about who God is, about what God is like as revealed in Christ, about what God is up to in, in your own life and in your own heart and the lives of the people around you. It's often in our areas of weakness and pain or areas of failure, where we learn some of the deepest lessons about God and, and God's love for us, and also where we, we see oftentimes kind of paths of how God might be anticipating using us in his world. It's the passage in, in 2 Corinthians where Paul says, we've been comforted so that we might comfort others. And about a decade of ministry, the one thing I know for sure is that the one place it seems God consistently wants to use me to be able to speak into the lives of other people or in the places where I myself have been hurt. So because I've experienced depression and anxiety, what I've found is this weird thing happens when, when one person talks about it, it kind of unclicks something and other people start to open up about it. You start to hear all kinds of different stories about it. You have an opportunity to minister to other people. Someone else who has experienced um, an untimely death or passing away, right? They, they often are able to now minister once they themselves have been comforted by Christ as they continue to be comforted by God in that area. One of our elders of the church, Cheryl, has this, this widow's ministry that comes from a, a place of deep pain in her own life from losing her husband. And is now able to, to minister to so many other people. It's, it's often the case, I think, that, that God reveals himself to us and often reveals a path forward for us out of these, these, these failed uh, trips these failed fishing expeditions. 
the, the text, the story as we have it, emphasizes the togetherness of the disciples. You find at the very end of verse 2 in our English translations this morning, the English Standard Version, it's again emphasized in the Greek, by the way it's constructed, that these disciples were together when this happened. And there does seem to be some, some pattern throughout the, the Bible about God's self-revelation coming to his people when they gather together. To be sure, there are moments of individual reflection and one-on-one visions throughout the Bible. But these seem to be given to us, these stories, as the exception to the rule. These are, like the, these are why they're so exceptional. These are why they're written and, and kind of singled out. The larger pattern throughout God's interaction with his people from the very beginning of Scripture seems to be it's in these gathered settings. It's in these corporate settings. We're told in the the New Testament, the Spirit lives in us as a community. The Spirit dwells in you all. The pronoun is plural there. And there seems to be something to this idea throughout Scripture, and again in my own experience, that when, when God's people gather together, he has this pattern of showing up revealing himself. You get glimpses of what he's like. You get glimpses of, of who he is. You get glimpses of what he's doing in the world. It's often the case that it's, it's not sitting alone by ourselves where we get these grand visions, but it's, it's in a conversation with somebody else. It's in a circumstance where someone else forgives you even though you don't deserve it, or you're um, in a situation where you're called to forgive someone else where you're called to, to love an enemy, where you're called to sacrifice some of your own time, that God's character starts to click in your heart. It's often the case that when we hear the words of God, like the disciples in the boat hearing the word of Jesus, that the things start to click for us. If there are patterns in the story that make you think of a church service, this might be intentional. So the, the disciples are gathered together, Jesus, his word goes out to the disciples. They respond to it in obedience, and they end with a meal. Does it sound like a basic kind of church service structure you might have been familiar with? It seems to be the point. Particularly in this this meal we'll talk about, John seems to be really laying heavy hints on, this is just like the meal we've been given. Remember, John's not writing this to the disciples. They they know what happened in their own hearts. He's writing this to the, the Christians after the disciples. Where might you meet the resurrected Christ? Well, he's promised to meet us at the table. Where he said, this is my body, this is my blood, and here you remember me. I'll be present with you here in some special and and profound way. The disciples are gathered together. More often than not in my own life, it's not sitting down by myself reading the Bible that I, I see something I hadn't seen before, something clicks I hadn't clicked before. It's reading it with somebody else or talking about something with somebody else where, where they ask a question that I never would have asked or, or they notice something that I've never noticed before. And more often than not, to get a glimpse of what God wants to do in my life, it usually comes from hearing about other people speaking truth into my life. Hey, I think God might be doing this in your life. Hey, I've, I've kind of noticed God seems to have given you this skill. Just on, on our own, we can kind of go scattershot with this. Not everyone is meant to do everything. And often it, it's the people outside of us. It's the, it's the people around us who can encourage, who can notice, who can point out, who can help build, find space to utilize these gifts that God has, has given us. 
Christ, I think, reveals himself. There's a, there's a pattern to be found here when, when his people come together, when there is this togetherness of God's people. Another way we, we might pick up on what John is laying down here about where we might find the risen Christ revealing himself is just this, this fishing expedition itself. You see, this is not a religious thing. The first couple of revelations, you, you might say, were kind of more religious in nature if we were trying to extrapolate that from these stories. When you, they're just extraordinary. You've got this tomb revelation in the garden with Mary Magdalene, and then you've got these believers huddled around anticipating to hear to meet from God. But this is just an ordinary work day. This is just another day in the week. This is just another idea to, to get some fish. And they go into this, this moment with no real big expectations. They don't come into this moment holding God's feet to the fire. This is not where he has to, supposed to show up. But in this very ordinary moment, in this very regular moment, Christ reveals himself. And I just get tickled because it's, it's done in such a playful way. I mean, I just, I just, playfulness oozes out of this story to me, from Jesus' questions to the disciples, to his instructions to them, to Peter's reactions, to the meal he has set for them, the way he kind of brings this whole situation together. I think there's some truth to the idea that for all we talk about the various attributes of God, revealed to us most fully in the life and person of Jesus of Nazareth. Sometimes maybe we miss out on like a, a joyousness of God to God, a graciousness to God, a, almost a playfulness to God. Um, there's, a, there's a whole field of study. There's a whole discipline that's built around the, the concept of play and how important playing is to being a human being. And how when we, we expand and look out across the world, how important playing is to being a creature. To, to most other living things that populate this earth alongside of us. And when we see something so prevalent in creation, we might wonder, right, is this somehow reflected in the heart of God? You can't always make these jumps. It's always much better to start with Jesus and work to a conclusion about God than to start with just something you observe. Because what you observe might be distorted or twisted, right? This is, this is never an easy task to do, but we, we might wonder, looking out around the world, looking at how we interact and behave, if, if there's something about our need to have this kind of playfulness in our lives that might be true about God himself. There, you know, there are passages. There's Psalm 104, God created the Leviathan, we're told, so that he could play with him. In Proverbs 8, wisdom personified, talking about creation, and, and she says, I was there, uh, I was participating in creation, and I was playing with the the children of men. A few years ago, I read a book on the theology of sports, and I was really hoping there would be a good theology behind sports. So I like sports. I like to watch sports. And, and the book kind of went into this aspect of play, right? How, how important it is for our lives. Play is often defined as something that's like an activity that's autotelic, um, meaning it's self-directed. It has its own end in mind, right? You, you don't do it just for the purpose of something else which would be more characteristic, more or less, of something for work. I do this so that I get paid. Play is more like, I would do this regardless, right? It doesn't mean there aren't good reasons to play. You learn all kinds of things in play. Children learn all kinds of things in playing. Social skills, they build relationships. You learn how to take risk. But playing is often done just for the sake of itself. 
You kind of lose yourself in that, that flow. And if you, you look at sports, and, and the way the theologian did it, he broke it down, sports is, in a sense, almost a celebration of creation itself. And, and you get some of this when sports go sideways, because it kind of feels like we're all just celebrating ourselves, or that one person, or that one team, right? And it's like, okay, maybe that's when it's a little distorted or, or over the edge, but maybe there's some truth to that, where we're kind of just delighted in who we are, how God has made us, the world we've been given, the way we can interact in that world. And so the way he, he laid this out was, he said this, and I thought it was great. He said, sports are unnecessary but meaningful. Right? You don't really need them, but they provide a lot of meaning in a lot of people's lives. When Lindsay and I were on our honeymoon in Belize, we, we went on a tour of some Mayan ruins, and there was one of, the, they think it's one of the oldest kind of ball courts that, that we have in, in archaeological digs. And there, you could see this like set out little court. And he said, but if you, if you think about it, what are we as God's creation, if not unnecessary but meaningful? You and I aren't necessary. God doesn't need you and I to exist. God does not create out of a lack of something. He creates out of an overflow. And yet what he creates, and yet you and I have meaning, have purpose, have a real sacredness to it. What if in, in sports or, or in play, when, when done right, we're, we're living into that identity? What if, what if kind of using this way of looking at it, in creation itself, this is, this is kind of a game in the most profound and holy sense to God? It's unnecessary but meaningful. And when you and I tap into this, this is why sometimes it feels so in the pocket for us in terms of like existence. When we're playing with our kids, and there's no timetable or, or end to be gotten to. Or we can think back to as children, when we were playing in a moment of just pure play. Or even as adults, when, when we're able to be silly with one another, laugh with one another, play around with one another. It's an important part of life. The psychologists say the opposite of play is not work. It's despair. I mean, it's like a lack of hope, lack of joy. I think Christians maybe need to play a little bit more because we're often too serious in a, in a negative way. So we live in a very serious world. We've always, but it feels especially so right now, live in a serious time. There are serious things happening around us. There are serious things happening in our own lives. There are serious things happening in the lives of the people around us. But there's a difference between recognizing that seriousness and then also understanding our dependence on God, the sheer gift even of these serious situations, and the command to rest and our invitation into God's heart of joy, living into these prophecies where God turns grieving into laughter. I know I certainly have experienced Christ revealing himself in some significant way to me, not just in regular or ordinary times, but in silly times, in playful times, in a, in a joke, in a, in a tease or a rib, in a game. But it didn't matter. It wasn't necessary, but, but it had meaning. Christ, he, he shows up at this fishing trip, an ordinary day, an ordinary situation, in what I think is, is kind of a playful way. 
And there the disciples learn something about who God is and what he's like and, and what he's up to in the world around them. Now, we, we might look at the, the miracle that's performed here and say Christ reveals himself so often in, in times of meeting our needs. The Sea of Tiberias, that's not Jesus' first miracle performed here. He's done similar acts of power at the sea before. And yet again, the disciples, they find themselves with this need, and he meets it. And in that meeting of the need, they see and recognize the Lord. This is often true in, in our lives, which is why Christians, I think, have this right impulse to go and meet the needs of other people, because it's often in that moment where, where one of God's children meets your need or, or shows you that unconditional love that really clicks for you or clicks for me that, oh, I guess God can be like that. I guess maybe, maybe God is using that person because what other reason would they have to sacrifice like that, to be so selfless, to, to serve like that? Well, I guess if, if one of God's children can love me like that, then maybe it's not too far off to think God could love me like that. I mean, if, if, if they can get past this thing that's happened in my life, if they can, if, if they can forgive me from, from this mistake I've made, this thing that I've done to, to sin against them, then, then how much easier is it for me to lean into God's own heart behind that? It's often in the, the miracle and the need being met that Christ reveals himself to us. And then the meal. I think the meal is the climax of this story. The disciples, after hearing God's word, after responding to it, they show up at the shore to find out there's already been a, a place set for them. You know, they didn't build this fire. Didn't get the bread out. There's apparently some fish already there. But Jesus invites what they've got. So I can, you can participate. But I've, I've got this place I've already set up for you, and I want to invite you to come and, and break bread with me there. I want to invite you to, to come there and eat with me, spend time with me. And this is where we're told, this is where the disciples couldn't get themselves to ask this question, who are you? The threshold couldn't be met in that moment, over the table, eating bread, fish, with the risen Christ. This is when they knew that it was the Lord. This is not the only story we have in the Gospels of the disciples coming to recognize who Jesus was when they're eating a meal with him. In the Gospel of Luke, there are two disciples on the road, and Jesus comes, and he's talking to them. They don't know quite fully who he is, though, and it's when they settle down and he breaks the bread that they recognize him. These are Gospel stories about something that happened and also about something that continues to happen. This is Luke and John. This is the disciples of Jesus saying, hey, there's a table that's been set for you. And at this table, as weird as it can sound, as ordinary as it can seem, as mundane as it can look, when the bread's broken, when people come together, Christ shows up. And something is revealed and is often revealed about who God is in Christ, about what God is like in the person of Jesus, about what God is up to in our world, in our lives, in the lives of people around us. I think we, we go the wrong direction. We try to explain the table. We say, okay, here's, here's my explanation of the mechanics behind it. When we do this, then God does this, and then this out equals out, and this is the equation I have for what is here and what's not here and how it's exchanged. And in the Gospels, there's this, like, again, kind of childlike Hooray. 
I'm, I'm not going to ruin it by trying to explain it. All I know is something happens here. Something happens when I'm invited to the table. Something happens when I come with my brothers and sisters. God's heart is, is revealed to me in a way unlike it has been revealed before, unlike it's often revealed to me. I, I, I grew up in a church tradition that did not celebrate communion weekly as we do here at Sweetwater Christian Church. And I know for myself, when I first came to the church, this is one of the things that I had to get used to, and then that became so meaningful to me. And before I was at the church, I probably would have actually given you like theological, intellectual reasons why it might be a better idea not to do it every week. And I've not gotten any better explaining it, but now I've seen not only in my life, but in a lot of other people's lives as well, that sometimes someone will come to the church and, and let's say a, a gentleman had come with a lot of questions about his faith. And, and we had dialogue, and, and we got breakfast, and he made a lot of friends here at the church. But years later, at the end of the day, here's the story he tells you, right? I went to the table one morning. That's really what, what kind of broke him in this beautiful spiritual sense. It was going to the table. It was realizing I was invited to meet with Christ, to receive Christ. That shifted everything around in my heart. That started the, the moving process where I had to kind of reorganize all that I thought about who God was and about who I was. And then as John tells us this story, as we read it and, and think about it, we're reminded that in the very act of sharing stories, Christ often reveals himself to us. As John shares this story with us, Christ continues to reveal himself. And as, as we share our stories with one another and with family and friends, Throughout the week, God often shows up in these stories. A narrative is like this, this God-preferred bridge into people's hearts and minds. That's why God's people are commanded throughout the scriptures to just, hey, keep telling these stories. Keep telling the story of the cross and the resurrection. Keep telling the story of the Exodus. Keep, keep telling the stories of when God was faithful to you, of when, when God came through for you, when, when you had no fish and then you, you had too much fish. Tell those stories because in the telling of those stories and the sharing of those stories, I'm going to show up. I'm going to burst out. I'm going to break through from this narrative and, and, and become a reality, a living, acting person in a new situation, in a new context, in a new life, in a new heart. Where might we find God? Where, where could we find Christ? In a world that's often distorted, in a world where we often hear the wrong messages, hear the wrong things, in a world where it's so easy to get distracted and then end up in a place where we're kind of trapped, wondering, where can I hear from God? Where can I see God? Where can I experience God? This morning in, in the story, John tells us, I encourage us to ask this question, to take seriously the threads he leaves for us. I don't think the world as it is, the world we inhabit, is one that lacks from God's participation in it. If, if, if we're not seeing God, if God's not being revealed to us, I don't think the issue is on God's end. I'm not blaming you or blaming people in general. It's a hard thing to do sometimes. It's easy to get distracted, kind of get backed up into a corner. But the, the world that John tells us about is a world where, where Christ is revealing himself all over the place. The scriptures say there's, there's, not, there's no radio silence on God's part. Psalm 19, 
24 hours a day, the heavens are screaming about God. We received God's word to us. We were called together to meet with one another. We've got a, a table prepared for us. The question is, will we expect, will we look for, will we listen, will we respond? When the word comes out to us, will we, like the disciples, move our nets? When the table is set and the invitation is given, will we, like the disciples, sit down and eat? Will we, like John, pass on our stories? It's the challenge for us this morning. These are the questions for us to think about. 